As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. applies to theists and atheists alike. It's uncomfortable to change your views. And um, I always wonder whether my failure to change my views was because it was uncomfortable. But I don't think so, because I think my arguments are good and the arguments against are bad, and that's just how it is. Either it's just an incredible fluke that the numbers in our physics happen to be right for life, or these numbers in our physics are as they are because they are the right numbers for life. In other words, that there is some kind of goal-directedness towards life at the fundamental level of reality. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that really matter to all of us. Before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Today we are talking about another important topic, and we would love to hear your thoughts on this, so do get in touch by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk. But for now, let's jump in on today's discussion. Hello, and welcome to Unbelievable. In a world where people who disagree don't talk to each other enough and certainly don't learn from each other enough, this is a show that brings Christians and non-Christians together for open and generous dialogue on the topics that matter most to all of us. Today, we're going to be digging into a new book by Dr. Philip Goff entitled, Why? The Purpose of the Universe. For many of us, when it comes to the purpose of the universe, we tend to fall into one of two camps. Some of us believe God exists and that he determines the purpose of the universe, and some of us believe that atheism is true and that the universe does not have a deep overarching purpose. Dr. Goff's book says we're all wrong. Well, at least if we fit into one of those two main categories. He says we've oversimplified the debate, and his aim is actually to carve out a middle ground between God and atheism. It's a very intriguing proposal, which is why I'm delighted to have Professor Goff joining us today on the show. Philip is professor of philosophy at Durham University and is best known for defending panpsychism, the view that consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. This is a view that's becoming more popular in philosophy, in part due to Professor Goff's work. Philip, welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Vince. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, wonderful. I think you're third, third or fourth time uh, being on the show. So it's great to great to have you back. Good to be here. 
I'm also delighted to have here alongside Philip, Professor Richard Swinburne, a longtime Nullith Professor of the Philosophy of Christian Religion at Oxford. Uh, Professor Swinburne is one of the most influential philosophers of religion of his generation, the author of many books, a fellow of the British Academy, and many would say the person who has done the most in recent decades to defend the existence of God. Thank you so much, Richard, for being with us. I'm very pleased to take part. Richard, you wrote a review of Philip's new book, actually, for uh, the Times Literary uh, Supplement. You called the book exciting and challenging. You also had some disagreements with it that we look forward to uh, discussing. But before we get to that, I just wanted to give first our audience some sense for both of you, just a bit of your personal journeys to the beliefs that you now hold, because our background, context, and experiences certainly impact the conclusions that we come to. And so I always love to understand at least the main contours of a person's story. So I wonder, maybe, maybe Philip, you would start us off. Would you mind telling us a bit about your own personal journey to the conclusions that you now hold? Thanks, Vince. Well, yeah, as you say, I think so many people feel you have to fit into this dichotomy of either believing in the God of traditional Western religion or embracing secular atheism. So it's like, which side are you on, Richard Dawkins or the Pope? You've got to decide. And well, I was raised Catholic, but I decided when I was about 14, I didn't believe in God and um, upset my grandmother by refusing to get confirmed. And so I guess I was on team secular atheist quite happily for a long period of time, most of my life. And um, but more recently, partly through teaching philosophy of religion, actually, I just wow. came to think that um, both of these options are inadequate, that both of them have things about reality that they can't explain. Yes, I mean, it's maybe five years ago when I came to Durham and they asked me to teach philosophy of religion and it's a standard course. You do the arguments against God and you do the arguments for God and then you have to say, which wins, and then the students write an essay on which side they think wins the most. Um, so I taught the arguments against God, and I thought, yeah, very compelling, definitely no God. And then I taught the arguments for God, and I thought, oh my God, these are quite compelling as well, at least in particular the, the argument from fine-tuning. And so I was in a bit of a pickle. I see, you know, I don't mind changing my mind if I feel the, I changed my view on the arguments, but I seem to, ha seem to be having two things pointing in contradictory directions. And I was a bit sort of losing sleep on this for a little bit. But then I actually realized, actually, these traditional arguments for and against God are not actually contradicting the, contradicting each other because the arguments against God are arguing against a quite particular kind of God, what we sometimes call the omni-God, all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly good. Whereas the arguments for God are pushing for something much more generic. Maybe the fine-tuning arguments pointing just to some kind of goal-directedness or purpose in the universe. So if you go for some kind of goal-directedness, something god-ish, but without the traditional omnigod, then you can have your cake and eat it. You can accept both of these arguments. And I guess that's ultimately led to this book. And great. Well, having your cake and eating it sound, sounds good. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to digging into some of those arguments. Did you find it daunting at all, Philip? I was thinking, you know, the panpsychist community is probably a smaller community than the uh, theist community or the atheist community. So in some ways, it was uh, maybe a challenging step to take to say, well, actually, my beliefs are winding up in a position that puts me in the minority. Uh, did you experience that at all? 
Well, it is. It is a. You're right. It is a bit more of a controversial area. I mean, I always hate the dichotomies. I guess, and that, my work in philosophy of mind has been like that. When I was taught philosophy, it was either you, but you're a dualist. You think the mind is something sort of supernatural outside of the body and the brain, or you're a materialist. You just think it's the electrochemical signaling in the brain. And again, I came to think both of those were inadequate. And, you know, I hate the, these dichotomies are all over the place. So, you know, do you go for US capitalism or Soviet communism, you know, as if there's nothing in between. But I suppose with the, the atheism, theism debate, it is even more of a controversial, polarized issue. And, you know, now everyone hates me because I'm saying both sides are wrong. But in a way, it's also great because it engages so many people in, in, a, in a very real way. So that's, that's, that's also a really enjoyable aspect of this new this new book. Excellent. Well, you are very welcome here. <laughs> uh, Richard, how about for you? Um, did you always or from a young age have the confidence that you now do in the existence of God? What did that journey look like for yourself? Uh, yes, I've always believed in the existence of God, but I don't know why I believed in the existence of God in my early years. Uh, my parents were not uh, religious. Um, perhaps it was some influence at school. I don't know. Anyway, but in my teenage years, I became conscious that the world was, or the world, um, the Anglophone world was gradually moving against religion. Um, and uh, the um, religious people didn't seem to have much of an argument in their defense uh, against normal naturalist objections. And I saw the need for my views to be backed up by arguments. And so, uh, as you know, I've devoted quite a lot of my life to fine-tuning those arguments uh, for the existence of God. I uh, think that the arguments for uh, which uh, have impressed Philip are, are compelling. Um, it's, it would be enormously improbable that there would be a, a well-organized world governed by laws of nature which are such as to produce human bodies and humans are conscious and have choices uh, and can make a difference to the world unless it was designed for that purpose. Where without um, uh, design, and um, in this respect, uh, Philip agrees with me, um, without design, uh, why should there be a universe at all? Uh, why should it be governed by laws of nature? Why should the laws of nature be of that very particular kind? That kind includes their fine-tuning, which would be immensely improbable uh, without uh, design. And even if you had a universe with fine-tuning and so on, there's not the slightest reason why uh, human beings should be conscious uh, evolution could have worked perfectly well by throwing up zombies. Um, so it's compelling, I think, the arguments for. The main argument against is, of course, the argument from suffering, from sinning and suffering. Uh, Philip, like many others, has felt that that is a conclusive argument against the omni-god, because surely a very good god, as he is supposed to be, would have uh, prevented such suffering. But I don't think so. Um, while I admit that a world without suffering um, oh, <laughs> would, would be a good thing, it's also a good thing that we have suffering because that enables us to have serious choices about how to 
uh, how to live and to make choices how other people can live. And we're not going to be responsible for other people unless what we do matters and makes a difference. But it can only make a difference if, were we not to act, they would suffer. And um, I developed that at great point at great length, and I dare say you'll want to explore that great length a little later in these discussions. But um, that is, is the general argument. There's a real question here, uh, which is for Philip. Why would God, or any good God at all, um, or any good purpose, uh, want to produce this universe in which we only live for 80, 90 years at most? And uh, um, uh, why would he have wanted to produce such a universe in which we can't make any real difference to anybody else? They go their way. We go our way. Uh, we all enjoy uh, a game of football, but uh, otherwise uh, there's no point in it. But if there's to be a point in it, and God would, God who loved us would want to give us something really worthwhile to do, to make a difference to whether or not others have a good life. And if he's to do that, then he must make the fallback position that they don't always have a good life and then we have the chance of making their life good and by our choices we make ourselves good and God that's what God is really interested in that we should make ourselves saints by our own free choice and mm. through that the world really is worth living that's great that's great well we okay we have a lot to talk about I'm ex I'm excited about this uh Let's park that topic uh, for a few minutes in the in the next section. We'll make sure we'll have an extended time on suffering and absolutely, Philip, give you a chance to respond to that. I want to hit on fine tuning as well, because that's actually a point of agreement for, for the two of you. Uh, and so maybe just before we uh, head to that, just one more question on your personal story, Richard. When you were in those teenage years and you found, uh, and then as you began to study philosophy and, and you found that some of the arguments were not that robust... Uh, did that ever cause you to doubt or think maybe your initial instinct about God was wrong? Um, how did you how did you know actually that the step you should take would be to fortify these arguments as opposed to be persuaded by the lack of robustness that you saw in them? Well, I, <laughs> I have to admit that I wasn't uh, uh, worried by the arguments, and it worries me that I wasn't worried by the arguments against <laughs> me. <laughs> Because yes. one always admires people who held one view, and then they've been presented with arguments or experiences that has led them to change their view. Because I think all of us uh, don't like changing our views. Philip seems to be happy with changing his views, but perhaps he's not really, as it were, got a life interest in his views. But if we've got a life interest in our views, our views make a great difference to how we live. And surely anyone who takes the Christian religion seriously, it's going to make a great difference to how they live. And um, in that case, um, you don't like changing your views. This applies to theists and atheists alike. It's uncomfortable to change your views. And um, I always wonder whether my failure to change my views was because it was uncomfortable. But I don't think so. 
because I think my arguments are good and the arguments against are bad, and that's just how it is. <laughs> well, I appreciate the self-awareness of that and, and also appreciate, Philip, in, in your story that it was even while teaching some of these arguments that you made that change of view, uh, which having taught some of these arguments myself, I, I know can be challenging when all of your students are looking to you as the one who's supposed to have all, all of the answers. So I, I appreciate that as well. Well, let's let's dive first into this topic of fine tuning, because this is actually, as I you know began reading your book, Philip, I thought, oh, wow, this is a, a major point of agreement between Richard uh, and, and Philip, this idea that the fundamental features of the universe seem to be finely tuned in such a narrow range for life that that appears to be evidence for purpose in the universe. And typically, you have the people who believe in God would give a thumbs up to the fine-tuning argument, and people who maybe don't believe in a traditional God would give a thumbs down. But you're sort of breaking the mold here, Philip. Can you talk a little bit about where you see the persuasiveness of those arguments and what you think the arguments show? Yeah, I think it's just such a striking, un unexpected feature of modern physics that for life to be possible, certain numbers in physics had to fall in a quite narrow range. So, I mean, the example that's perhaps most startled cosmologists revolves around dark energy, the force that propels the expansion of the universe. Once you do the calculations, it becomes apparent that if that force had been a little bit stronger, everything would have shot apart so quickly that no two particles would have ever met. We wouldn't have had stars, planets, any kind of structural complexity and therefore no life. Whereas if that force had been a little bit weaker, it, it wouldn't have counteracted gravity and everything would have collapsed back on itself a split second after the Big Bang. So again, no stars, planets, life. And, and that's just one example. There are many numbers like this. So I mean, I think fundamentally we have a choice. Either it's just an um, incredible, more than astronomical fluke that the numbers in our physics uh, happen to be right for life, or these numbers in our physics are as they are because they are the right numbers for life. In other words, that there is some kind of goal-directedness towards life at the fundamental level of reality. Now, you know, that's that's weird. That's, you know, and I, I think because it's weird and it doesn't fit with science as we've got used to it, I think at the moment we're a bit in denial about it as a society. I think it's a bit like in the 16th century where you we started learning, getting evidence that we weren't in the center of the universe and people struggled to accept that because it didn't fit with the picture of reality they'd got used to. And these days we often scoff at those people and think, oh, those stupid religious people, why didn't they just follow the evidence? But I think every generation absorbs a worldview they can't see beyond and that you feel a bit silly if you speak against. I feel a bit silly talking about cosmic purpose. I wish I didn't have to. But, you know, <laughs> it, it, I, I like to I quote in the book the, uh, the great economist Keynes, a journalist once said to him, you didn't used to think that. And he said, well, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? But I think that's, that's really hard for human beings to do. I think, I mean, for a long time, I... Richard might, may disagree with this. I think for over a hundred years, there was no evidence in physics for anything, anything like cosmic purpose. And then we get this our idea in our culture that, oh, science has ruled that out. That's we've moved on from that. But then slowly from the 70s onwards, 
the evidence, in my view, has changed as we get start to get these facts about fine-tuning. As we start to get the standard model of particle physics, we can play with the numbers, run computer simulations, see what a different universe would look like with different numbers. The facts change. But I think it just takes time for the culture to catch up with that. I think future historians will look back and think it was just bizarre that we just ignored the evidence of fine-tuning for so long. Wow, that's that, no, that's really significant. And you know, the analogy that I sometimes think of is if you walk into a room and see people playing poker uh, and you watch the same person get one royal flush after another, uh, you know, 10, 12, 20, 30 royal flushes in a row, at some point, if you're being rational, you have you can't just keep saying, wow, what a coincidence. At some point, you have to say, that guy's cheating, right? There has to be some sort of purpose direction to the fact that we are getting this outcome uh, over and over. Uh, Richard, when you think about fine-tuning, so for Philip, he thinks fine-tuning points towards some form of cosmic purpose, but not necessarily toward a personal God. Do you agree with that? Well, I certainly feel it points beyond, but I, 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 I just make a, a point about uh, what he's just been saying, what you've just been saying. He suggests that only a few decades ago did we have evidence for the existence of God from the nature of the universe. And I think that's false. I think we've always had it. Why is there a universe at all? Why does it have laws of nature? The laws of nature say that they take different centuries who had different views about what they are, but they've always believed there are regularities in the behavior of things, for example. I take the post-Newtonian century. Everybody uh, believed that every atom in the universe, or every chunk of matter in the universe, uh, behaved in exactly the same way as every other chunk in, att in attracting other chunks uh, with forces proportional to the square of their, proportional to the product of their masses, and inversely proportional to the square of their distance apart. And... Um, uh, once people can see that, and also they could see, um, if they came to believe in evolution, uh, that um, there were that the laws were such as to lead to the production of more complicated life of the sort that eventually became intelligent life, and they could also, if they thought about it, uh, see that all the laws of nature they knew about, or have ever heard about, or anybody knows about now. Uh, have no consequences whatever for humans being conscious or uh, <laughs> in any way intelligent beings who could react to God. And yet that evidence was always with us. What fine-tuning does is to give some nice precise numbers, and physicists like nice precise numbers, and they bring out the fact that this is it enormously improbable, just the very stage from there being laws of nature of certain kinds to those being the particular laws they are with the particular constants having the particular values they are uh, leading to the production of life. It's not merely the fine constants, it's the fact that the, uh, the fine constants, I should say, for the sake of uh, your audience, they're, uh, the sound physics uh, assumes or believes good evidence uh, there are four kinds of forces at work in the universe. Gravity, electromagnetism, the strong force, and the weak force. So that all these forces in different ways 
that determine the interaction between bodies. And these forces say that a body of a certain sort exercises a certain sort of influence on other bodies. And um, look, the, the degree of that force yeah, is, is governed by a constant. Uh, gravity, for example, says that force of gravity is as a certain constant, g times the force, uh, the product of masses and inversely proportional square of the bar. And it's that constant that in all the, the uh, laws has to lie within a very precise number, quite apart from the um, force of the cosmic um, repulsion, uh, which um, Philip mentioned. But um, it's very, very tiny, one in the um, trillion, trillion, trillion uh, of the possible values. If it was outside that, there would be no life. Well, wow. Um, wow. Uh, it's not merely that, but it's the, the fact that the laws themselves are of a kind that can be tuned uh, in this way. If there wasn't a gravitational law force at all, whatever its value, we wouldn't have life. And if there wasn't an electromagnet, whatever, etc., we wouldn't have life. If there wasn't quantum theory, we wouldn't have life. And so there's just so much there. Yes, uh, wow. Much of it, much of it was... Uh, in general terms, uh, available to uh, generations long before ours. But this is just like a number, and a number yes. is fine, truly. Uh, one in a trillion, 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 that really um, excites them. Rightly so, but uh, um, the, the arguments were always there. Wow, one in a trillion, trillion, trillion. That, that certainly produces produces all. We, we need to take a break, uh, but if you're listening, uh, we always love to hear from you. Email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch on social media at unbelievablefe for Twitter, now X, or at Facebook. You can go to facebook.com backslash premier unbelievable. So much more to talk about. You're listening to Premier Unbelievable with me, Vince Vitale, along with my esteemed guests, Richard Swinburne and Philip Goff. We'll be back in just a moment. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of this discussion on Premier Unbelievable, where my guests Philip Goff and Richard Swinburne are discussing Dr. Goff's new book, Why the Purpose of the Universe, in which he seeks to carve out a middle ground between God 
and atheism. We've just been talking about fine-tuning as an argument for purpose uh, in the universe. And typically at this point in the discussion, somebody puts their hand up and says, multiverse, what about the multiverse? Doesn't that undermine this argument? So we should say at least something in response to that. Philip, do you want to make a point? Yeah, well, to be honest, the, the multiverse is what I used to go for for a long time. I've always thought fine-tuning needs explaining but it seemed to me the multiverse was the um, seemed to be the more plausible explanation, and I, but I've just been persuaded over a long period of time, drag kicking and screaming, really, uh, persuaded by philosophers of probability that there is some problematic reasoning in the inference from fine tuning to a multiverse, that it commits what what is referred to in the literature as the inverse gambler's fallacy. So maybe just, just to give the basic idea of that. So suppose Richard and I go to a casino in Oxford tonight and uh, we walk in the door and the first thing we see is just one person on their own playing a roulette wheel and they're just winning time after time. They're just having incredible wins time after time after time. And I turn to Richard and say, oh, there must be lots of people playing roulette in the casino tonight. And Richard says, what, what are you talking about? We just seen this. This one guy, what's that got to do with what's going on elsewhere in the casino? And I say, well, look, if there are, if there are, you know, thousands of people playing roulette in the casino, it's not so surprising that one of them has an incredible run of luck. Now, everyone agrees that that's a fallacy, right? That's that's the inverse gambler's fallacy, right? Because all we've our observational evidence is just this one particular person playing roulette. No matter how many people there are or are not elsewhere in the casino, it doesn't have any bearing on how likely it is that this particular guy we've observed is going to win big. But that looks completely indiscernible from the reasoning of the multiverse theorist, right? They start, oh my God, it's really improbable that our universe has the right numbers for life against incredible odds. There must be loads of other universes out there with terrible numbers. But our observational evidence is just that this one, this universe is fine-tuned and no matter how many universes there are out there, it has no bearing on how likely it is that this universe, the only one we've observed, is fine-tuned for life. So that's really, I was just utterly persuaded after about three years of going through this that that's not an option and we have to turn to more radical options. Just very briefly as well, Richard was saying in the last half about consciousness and i think that this is the as well as the fine tuning this is the other thing i focus on in the book because i think there is a a deep underexplored challenge making sense of the evolution of consciousness the fact that consciousness evolved and the reason is that natural selection just cares about behavior right because behavior is all that matters for survival and with the with rapid recent progress in ai and robotics it's become apparent that you can have incredibly complicated behavior and information processing without any kind of inner life or consciousness at all. And this raises the question, well, why did natural selection just make, instead of making conscious organisms, just make survival mechanisms, very complicated mechanisms that can track features of their environment in a kind of purely mechanical way and initiate survival conducive behavior without having any kind of inner life or consciousness. Mm -hmm. So so I think there are deep mysteries, both with the fine tuning we find in physics and making sense of the evolution of consciousness. And it's it's these that both push me away from our traditional, meaningless, purposeless universe we associate with secular atheism. 
Any points of disagreement there, Richard, or does that sound right to you? Uh, well, I agree with his uh, uh, main conclusions, but I would say first with regard to the multiverse, um, scientists, or some scientists, purport to have evidence of the existence of the multiverse because, in their view, the simplest theory which explains how things behave in our universe does make the prediction that there would be another universe. In their view, the simplest theory would say there was once upon a time uh, a big soup and uh, the, the soup threw up uh, universes at different times with different uh, constants. And they say uh, that that is the simplest thing. But it, I think the evidence is uh, that um, they have to make a very complicated theory in order to get this. And all that they can get is a few other multiverses, a few other universes. Um, if you just argue that if the, um, the, multi if the multiverse throws up uh, all sorts of universes, then that would explain things. Uh, it will only do that if the multiverse itself is fine-tuned for the evolution of universes which produce fine-tuned things. So the question just moves one stage back if you postulate universes. And that's what I would say there. You have to have fine-tuning once again. And um, consciousness, yes, I agree. So, so you... You both agree atheism can't account for fine-tuning and for elements in the development of consciousness. Philip, you then go on to argue that a traditional theism can't account for suffering in the world. So here's where we sort of move from agreement to some disagreement because Richard has written uh, a whole book on how uh, theists can account for suffering um, in the world. Uh, in the first part of this episode, he gave a, a, at least a brief summary, and I know you're familiar, Philip, with his his work on this topic. So maybe, Philip, you could initially give some sort of response to the summary that Richard gave uh, in his approach to accounting for suffering, and then we can have a bit of dialogue about that. So this is, thanks, this is the familiar problem of reconciling a loving God with the terrible, seemingly gratuitous suffering we find in the world. Why would a loving God choose to bring us into existence through such a long-winded, torturous process like natural selection? Why would a loving God create the North American long-tailed shrew that paralyzes its prey and then slowly eats it alive over several days until it dies from its wounds? Just kind of makes no sense to me. Now, what I like about Richard's work on this, and I'm very, very honored that he's reviewed my book, a very interesting review and willing to talk about it now. What I really like about um, Richard's work is he focuses not just on the question of are there great goods which are afforded by the presence of natural evil, for example, but does God have the right? Does God have the right to hurt and kill people in order to bring about those goods by allowing hurricanes and uh, cancer and so on? And this is really what I focus on in my book. So, I mean, to see the distinction, though, if you take um, a very familiar thought experiment, which is used to critique very crude forms of utilitarian moral philosophy, people might be familiar with this. We imagine that there's a doctor who could uh, kill one healthy patient against their consent, <laughs> harvest their organs and save five 
ill patients, you know, gives the heart to one, the lungs to another and so on. If the doctor does that and nobody finds out about it, maybe the doctor could um, increase well-being and happiness in the world, you know, fewer people mourning and so on. But most of us feel that doctor does not have the right to take that healthy patient's life, even if it's to increase well-being. Likewise, I think even if Richard is right that there are great goods uh, in our universe that wouldn't be around in a universe of less suffering, such as the important moral choices, the, the, the potential to show courage and compassion, even if that's right, I don't think a creator would have the right to kill and to maim, to infringe the rights of to life and health and security of people in so doing, which is a, which is what God is doing by creating a world of hurricanes and so on. Um, so, so that's really where I come down on it, which is, but it's an, it's a nice kind of place to focus the discussion that's maybe less focused on, I think. Yeah. Excellent. Richard, would you respond to that in particular yes, about indeed. divine rights? God isn't the only person who has the right to impose suffering. In fact, that there, there, there are two, uh, individuals who have the right to impose suffering on others. The word individual is not quite the right word, but at any rate, um, our parents have the right to impose suffering on us for good purposes, and so does the state. Our parents have the right, for example, to send a child to a neighborhood school, which is not uh, going to enjoy in order to cement relations in the community. Our parents are right to uh, send children to school at all, even though they don't enjoy it, and so on. Uh, and the state is right to, to uh, uh, impose punishments on us if we break the laws and so on. And what gives these two uh, institutions um, the, the right to do this is they are our principal human benefactors. They are responsible for our existence. They exist. They are the cause of our existence and uh, continuing existence, um, and have been that long before uh, we were old enough to make any decisions for ourselves. Our parents brought us into existence, fed us, nurtured us, educated us, and I'm talking about nurturing parents, not uh, mere biological parents, and the state. A good state, that is to say, and only a good state has rights, provides us with security uh, and a reasonably just legal system. And for those reasons, our human benefactors have the right to impose on us suffering both for our own benefit and also for the benefit of others. I mean, a supreme example of the latter is the state has the right to conscript people to go and fight in war, a just war to defend itself, even though they're likely to be maimed and killed in it. And um, the state has that right, but no gangster has that right, because the state is the source of our existence and well-being. Yet God is far, far more the source of our existence and well-being than our, our human parents and state because God is responsible for our human parents and the state having the powers they do to do this, and responsible for the whole setup of the universe which enables them to do this. And therefore, if humans and the state have limited rights to impose suffering or our benefit or others, God must have even greater rights 
But there are, I think, two conditions even on God's imposing rights. And um, what makes uh, parents of the state are only going to be our, uh, have these rights if they are indeed our benefactors, and there's a reasonable uh, prospect that they will remain our benefactors. That is to say, they have to be on balance benefactors through our life or in case of parents until we are adults. And so if they, they impose a lot of suffering on us, they, they have the obligation to compensate that later. And um, if God imposes such suffering on us that on balance our life up to this certain point is not worth living, then of course God has the obligation to ensure that in the future that is compensated for. And since God can provide life after death, he can always do this. Um, but the second condition is this. Neither parents nor the state are justified in imposing suffering on anyone unless the suffering is the only way in which some good can be achieved, uh, so comparable good can be achieved. Uh, parents can't send us to school for no purpose just to get rid of us. They have to send us to school because it will benefit us. And the state doesn't send people to fight, or it ought to send people to fight, unless there's a reasonable prospect that great good will result from this. Likewise with God. God is also subject to that requirement. And so it must be shown that for each piece of suffering which he imposes on us, there is some good which can't be achieved in any other way. And can't in this case means logically can't. That is to say, God can do anything logically possible. That means anything uh, which uh, the description of which doesn't involve a contradiction. So God can't make uh, me both six foot tall and only five foot tall at the same time, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, but subject to that, om God's omnipotence is understood normally as the ability to do anything logically possible, anything that doesn't involve a contradiction. So it has to be shown in the case of God that every every suffering which he uh, uh, imposes on us is such that uh, a greater or equally great good couldn't be attained in any other logically possible way. And I have tried to show my various writings that that is in fact the case. Uh, for example, um, <laughs> just to generalize the point that I made earlier, parents can only uh, look after us uh, and have responsibility for us, which is so good for parents to be responsible for someone and that be able to make life good for them. They can only have that if there is the possibility that if they don't exercise uh, their responsibility uh, in a great way, the children will suffer. If the children were not going to suffer anyway, they wouldn't have any responsibility for them, and that generalizes throughout. It affects both um, uh, uh, the uh, God allows uh, humans to hurt others because it's a good for the, the those who have the responsibility uh, to be able to exercise it. If they misexercise it, well, of course, that is a tragedy. 
But um, God gives human free will, and free will means it's up to them how they choose. That is to say, evil is produced by disease, and uh, which uh, we can't cure and so on at the moment. Why does God allow them? And the answer is because being subject to disease provides great opportunities for, if I'm suffering, for me and for others. For me, it provides the opportunity to bear my suffering with patience and uh, not being a nuisance to other people and so on. Um, whereas for my friends, it, it gives the opportunity to care for me or to ignore me. Uh, the evils present opportunities of kinds we wouldn't have otherwise have. Great. Well, let's, uh, let's let Philip jump back in here. Uh, you may have a response either on what Richard's just been talking about or jumping back to the issue of divine rights. Yeah, I think I disagree with Richard's view about why the state and parents have rights. So I'm, I'm quite interested in political philosophy, actually. I'm a sort of keen amateur. And I haven't, I must say, I haven't come across this view that the state has these rights because it's our benefactor. It's more common, for example, to find social contract theory, according to which we have some sort of implicit contract with the state sort of implicitly consenting in some in some sense or or just if the, some kind of pragmatic reasons that you know if we didn't have a state we'd have a wild state of nature so it's justified on those grounds and with parents you know i mean i have two little girls and i i do think i have the right to make certain choices for them but i would say that's because they are cognitively immature and they're not developed enough to to make competent decisions for themselves you know when they're older they'll be able to do that themselves so i don't think either of these two reasons if we understand them understand them in that way carry over to god just on that one point i just wanted to ask in terms of the cognitive immaturity relative to the parents would that sort of uh cross over then to the relationship between us and god that we would kind of be in that cognitively immature state relative to to god that's a good thought, but I mean, I suppose I, I think we do recognize that one reaches a point of maturity when one is cognizant of of, of one's identity and and um, reasons to act and is able to thereby, you know, freely live one's life. Even, of course, if, you know, you're not as clever as Einstein or something, you're not as wise as some people, but we do recognize there's a sort of cutoff point there and you know moreover this isn't sort of god correcting our childlike errors pulling us out as we're about to get run over by a boss i wish god would do that to be honest that's that's part of the problem that she doesn't do that so so yeah so i don't think that analogy necessarily carries over but also i mean just more generally um i guess i just don't feel any any push to there being an omnipotent God. I think the fine tuning does suggest some kind of goal directedness. Maybe we want to construe that as some kind of designer. I, as we'll probably get onto, I don't think necessarily you have to postulate a supernatural designer. But even if you do, I don't think anything in the fine tuning um, pushes you towards a, a, a an all powerful designer, just maybe a, a designer of some kind who cares about good things perhaps, but the fine-tuning is evidence that God cares about some good things like life. 
Um, so I just think if you if you just in a sort of unbiased way look at both these data points, on the one hand, the fine tuning, on the other hand, the gratuitous suffering. And I think we can we can look to hypotheses that account for both of these. Uh, maybe that maybe the, the designer is somewhat limited and this is the best universe she's able to create. And the, the designer's like, I wish, I'm, I'm sorry, it's going to be messy. I wish I could do better, but it's that or nothing. Anyway, I mean, that's just one one possibility. Yes. But I think there are hypotheses that quite straightforwardly account for both data points. So we don't need to tie ourselves in knots trying to come up with these sort of round the houses explanations of why why a god might have allowed all this terrible suffering. And we've got just a few minutes left in this segment. Uh, so I wonder if there are two more questions uh, toward you, Philip, in terms of your you know refutation of, of theodicy, just to get your your view on. Um, one, one was, uh, you know, one of the things I noticed, and you recognize this as well, I think, in your book, is you focus primarily on on Richard's theodicy. I think because you 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 find it to be the more plausible of the theodicies, even if you don't ultimately um, accept it. What would you say to someone who um, who says, well, I, I'm just not sure what to make yet of your refutation of theodicy because maybe it's a cumulative case. Uh, maybe it wouldn't be surprising if God had multiple reasons for creating the type of universe that he did. And so no one reason would accumulate to that place where you'd say, yeah, that justifies God in creating this sort of universe. And that uh, if we take into account the variety of theodicies that are out there, maybe the case would be more more compelling. What would what would your thoughts be on that? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think I, I think cumulative cases are going to be important for pressing the case for some kind of something godish. But again, I've when you look at most of the arguments for God, they point not to the omni god but to something godish. Um, I think maybe it's only the ontological argument which tries to prove a perfect being by definition must exist, which which I know Richard isn't too sympathetic to. I'm not too sympathetic to. I mean, if that argument worked, then I'd just have to say, okay, a good God must exist. There must be some difficult to discern reason why there's all this suffering. But if, if a good God is behind everything, then there must be a good reason. But if you look at the cosmological argument, the the um, fine-tuning argument, the moral argument even, and I'm to some extent sympathetic and unsympathetic to different aspects of these, but they, at best, they point to some kind of creator, maybe some kind of good creator, but I don't think they give us much, if any, reason to think this is an all-powerful creator. And so there's we can take we can take that okay a good creator i mean as i say i don't think you have to go to a creator but a good creator and then you look at the suffering well mm -hmm. this good creator mustn't be able to must not be all powerful and and we can have as i say we can have our cake and eat it there's a um... okay well let, let's pause there and then we'll have richard come back in and respond to that in the third in the third seg segment I, i'd also still like to talk briefly about maybe skeptical theism which you deal with in the book that's sort of the other major response to this question of suffering and then also philip about your sort of middle ways the the options that you give for this this space between God and atheism. But first, we need to take a break. Uh, if you're listening, let us know what you're finding convincing. We would love to hear from you. Email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. And if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. See you in just a moment. 
Welcome back to uh, the final part of our debate between Oxford philosopher Richard Swinburne and Philip Goff, author of Why the Purpose of the Universe. You're listening to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians thinking together about the topics that matter to all of us. I'm Vince Vitale. The two of you were disagreeing about what it is that grounds the rights of parents or the state to be able to impose certain types of hardships on people and how that then might relate to rights that God might have to allow suffering in this type of universe. So we, we heard from you on that. Philip, Richard, would you like to respond? Uh, yes. Um, Pe uh, Philip said that uh, his rights uh, over his children were because they are uh, immature and um, couldn't uh, work out things for themselves. But he doesn't have that sort of right with respect to the neighbor's children or any other children. It's only with respect to his own children that he's got this right. And why is that? Because he's responsible for their existence and brought them into being and so on. Likewise, uh, the state, when it uh, calls up people to fight, uh, can't call up people from the neighboring uh, area to fight. And Philip said uh, this doesn't come into much contemporary political philosophy that he's aware of. Well, so much for the political philosophy of which he is aware, because it is surely the case that um, there is no social contract. Everybody knows that. Uh, this is an imaginary contract between people and uh, the state. But, of course, it is uh, one condition, because my first condition is that the benefactor must remain on balance of benefactor. And if the state uh, fails to be that, then, of course, its rights over us cease. But there is the second condition, uh, that it must... Um, sorry, but... Um, uh, no, no other state has been our benefactor, and so no other state has the right to uh, tell us to go and fight. It might be a good idea that we should go and fight, but if some gangster uh, decides that it is a good idea and tell, uh, well, he tells us, then uh, that doesn't constitute any obligation on us. So it is our relation, uh, the relation of parents and the relation of uh, the state to us as a result of their previous benefaction and the reasonable expectation of their future benefaction that gives them the right within limits uh, to impose this on us. Uh, so I stick on that, and therefore, of course, you're right, God. And uh, shall I go on to answer the second uh, point he was making? Um, oh, sure, feel free. Yeah. Um, he says that uh, his uh, explanation is um, a good explanation of these phenomena because he takes account of both the suffering and the design. Well, so he does, but it's a very complicated explanation. That is the point. Um, explanations are probably true insofar as both uh, they lead us to expect the evidence and without them, we have no reason to expect the evidence. But for any data, there will always be a million different explanations, uh, and in fact, an infinite number of explanations of any phenomena which a scientist may put forward, such that if this hypothesis is true, however complicated it is, and if you wouldn't expect the evidence without it, then that's reason to suppose it's true. But it's not enough reason. The explanation has to be simple, and 
Philip's explanation is not shameful, um, because it postulates two sorts of forces at work. And in fact, the forces, whatever they are, uh, whether it's uh, a weak god or some teleological law, are responsible not merely for the fine-tuning, but for the fact that there are laws at all, there is a universe at all, that there are laws at all, and that the laws are laws of gravity and so on. Um, and they're responsible for all that. So whatever it is that is responsible for the good in the world is a, a very powerful force. And to suppose that good was incapable of preventing a little bit of human and animal suffering seems to me a very complicated hypothesis. Um, now, the hypothesis that there is a perfect God is a very simple hypothesis. The criteria of simplicity, which operate in science and which I believe I've analyzed correctly, are that a hypothesis is simple and so far as it postulates few entities, few kinds of entities, few properties, few kinds of properties, more readily observable properties and mathematically simple relations between them. Now, the hypothesis of God need be phrased only as there is an essentially everlastingly omnipotent God. The other divine properties will follow from that, uh, because if um, uh, God is omnipotent, he will know, for example, if God is omnipotent, um, he will know of every action uh, he might take or what its effects would be, uh, except insofar as he gives us free will. And if he sees that an action is good, that will motivate him to do it. And if he sees that the action is bad, that will motivate him not to do it. Now, we humans are complicated things, and we have bad desires as well as good desires. But from the mere definition of God, it will follow that he doesn't have these complicated bad desires. He sees things good, and he would do them. And all the other divine properties follow from this one simple thing. I postulate only one entity. I postulate degrees of life in everlastingness, uh, degrees of power, uh, omnipotence, which themselves are zero limits to two very familiar uh, properties, being good and being, uh, um, being good and uh, being powerful. Uh, and naught is a very simple number. It's the simplest hypothesis you could get, and therefore um, <laughs> uh, it, it is to be preferred to the complicated supposition that Philip has put forward, uh, so long as there's a reasonable theodicy, and I argue there is a reasonable. I'm interested to hear, Philip, uh, you know, if you see a lack of simplicity as a point against some of the hypotheses, that you put forward, but nevertheless feel they are the best hypotheses because you feel so strongly about the problem of suffering, or whether perhaps you think about the relationship between simplicity and truth differently from Richard. Well, maybe I could just lay out the options I consider and then try and respond to some of Richard's really interesting arguments there. So broadly speaking, I consider three hypotheses for accounting for cosmic purpose. Perhaps the most straightforward is just to tweak the definition of God a bit. So maybe we maybe instead of the omni God, it's a bad God or a or an amoral God or a God of limited capacities, as I referred to earlier. 
or maybe the simulation hypothesis that maybe we're in a computer simulation created by some random person in the random software engineer in the next universe up. Um, however, so that's the first possibility, a sort of non-standard designer. But I don't think we necessarily need a conscious mind to undergird cosmic purpose. The philosopher Thomas Nagel has given a very well-worked-out conception of what he calls teleological laws, laws with purposes built into them. So it might just be a fundamental tendency in the universe, some directedness towards life that interacts with the more familiar laws of physics in ways we don't yet fully understand. So that's the second possibility, teleological laws. The third option, and the one that fits with my previous work, is cosmopsychism, the idea that the conscious universe itself is a conscious mind with its own goals. And I try to argue that's not as extravagant a hypothesis as you might at first think. But okay, but let's so coming to Richard's um view. So I I I find work I find Richard's work absolutely fascinating. And I do think he makes a good case actually that um the 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 omni god hypothesis is remarkably simple. I think he makes a better case than people like Richard Dawkins argue trying to argue to the contrary without really knowing what they're talking about. Anyway, um, so so I think yeah, I think there is a good case that it's a remarkably simple hypothesis, but I think we should be careful not to kind of fetishize simplicity. Uh, to take an example, Richard himself gives before we knew the speed of light uh, had a particular finite finite velocity, we took it to be infinite because infinity and zero are quite simple values. But then as soon as we get some empirical evidence that light has a certain finite speed, we're quite happy to quickly retreat to that less simple hypothesis because it fits the data better. We don't sort of tie ourselves in knots trying to still maintain that the speed of light is infinite. That's how I think about the God case. Maybe if in some sense, the Omni-God is very simple default hypothesis. But it doesn't fit so well, in my view, with uh, evil and suffering. So we shouldn't be that perturbed to retreat to a slightly less simple. But I, I would argue all the hypotheses I, I've just outlined are still fairly simple uh, hypotheses. And so we shouldn't be too, it shouldn't be seen as too problematic that we have to move to those. The imperative at the end of the day is to go for the, simp the simplest hypothesis that fits the data. And I would argue that the hypothesis I've just discussed fit the data of suffering better than the Omni-God hypothesis. Need to jump in, Richard? Uh, well, I, I agree with the point that if you have a, a conclusive evidence or even probable evidence uh, against the simple hypothesis and there is uh, one that isn't uh, too complicated, you should go to it. Um, I think it is rather complicated, but nevertheless, it needs a good theodicy, I quite agree. And I think they think the way into my theodicy is to ask yourself, why would God have made us at all, us humans? In order we might have a comfortable life? Well, maybe. Uh, but he would want us to do something a lot, or be something a lot better. It is the case that every time we do a good action of a certain kind, it becomes easier to do a good action of that kind next time, and conversely with bad actions. And so, even uh, though all the, um, the suffering provides us with uh, an opportunity to react to it in the right way, 
for its own sake, uh, but it also provides an opportunity, uh, the consequence that we make a difference to ourselves by what we do. And what God would, God is ambitious for humans. What God would like us to do would to be, to be saints. Uh, he would want us to be able to, uh, naturally to love other people and give everything, give ourselves for other people. And um, if that's what he's aiming at, then he's got to put us in very difficult situations sometimes so that we do have the opportunity to make heroic choices. And I think that's what he's done. But if you think of God as simply uh, someone who ought to be providing a comfortable life for us, then you're not giving God, you're not taking God seriously. The hypothesis is he's perfectly good and he wants us freely to choose to be perfect good. But you can't freely to choose to be perfect good unless you have an opportunity of doing the other. And he also wants to give humans the opportunity uh, to reject him, but he wants to ensure he wants to give us many opportunities for not rejecting him. But if someone is really determined to be evil, he will do evil acts in really, uh, really unpleasant region, evil acts and not be sensitive to any suffering that they cause. And so God allows people to become that sort of person. And so he gives us the opportunity choose between saint being saints which we want to be uh, which he wants us to be and being totally evil and rejected which of course he doesn't want us to be and i think that's god's generosity that he has these high ambitions for us philip i um you know your willingness to kind of think not just in terms of dichotomies is giving me a thought with respect to what richards has said and on the topic of suffering so i'd like to get your opinion on this, you know, sometimes we see this dichotomy where uh, some people have a, a full theodicy, right? Here, here's my full explanation of why God allows all the suffering in the world. And then there's this other major approach called skeptical theism. And, you know, roughly the idea is that we shouldn't expect to know pretty much anything about God's reasons for why he's allowed suffering. He's very big. We're very small. We shouldn't expect to know what his reasons are. You've expressed uh, concerns about that, Philip. Um, I agree with you. I think if we say we just know nothing about God's reasons, it actually undermines some of the other arguments like fine-tuning, because we wouldn't even know that God doesn't have an obligation not to fine-tune a universe if we went that extreme. But what I'm thinking is that most people don't fit into either of those two kind of clean camps, right? Most people, I think, are in a position, say most theists, where they say, I can see good reasons for why God allows much of the suffering in the world. But then there's some categories. Maybe it's particularly horrendous suffering. Maybe it's animal suffering. Maybe it's seemingly pointless suffering. And I just, I can't, I don't see what God's reasons are in those categories. Uh, but in light of that, I do think God is very big and that I'm pretty small. And uh, maybe I shouldn't be overly surprised if what I find as I approach this project of theodicy is that I feel compelled by the reasons for that God might have for allowing quite a bit of suffering, but I also find that some of his reasons might be obscured from me. Could you could you see a place for a plausibility for that sort of middle ground where someone's not claiming skeptical theism, but they're also not claiming a full, a fully successful theodicy? Yeah, sort of hybrid. So, well, I should say um, 
this book, my, my first book was an academic book. And my second book was aimed at a general audience. With this book, I'm, I'm trying to do both. So right. each chapter has a more accessible bit and then a sort of digging deeper bit, getting into some of more, the more technical details. And in the, the God chapter, I focus on what has become known as skeptical theism, which is one really interesting uh, cutting edge area of the problem of evil debate, where we say, I don't know why God allows evil and suffering, but... I shouldn't expect to know. Who am I? God's God. I'm God. You know, I shouldn't expect that I'm going to know God's reasons for doing stuff. I think Richard and I are both not too sympathetic to this. Um, I, and I guess my, my reasoning on this is, um, I mean, I make an analogy to dark matter. So dark matter, as we know, makes up, what is it now 95% of the universe? I think dark matter and dark energy put together. Uh, so, you know, a, a tiny percentage of the universe is, is the matter we can observe. No, you no, it could be that if you if you sort of knew the na the real nature of the dark matter, that would change not only our theories of dark matter, but our theories about the matter we do know about, because it might mean there's a more unified theory that incorporates both forms and that might revolutionize our physics. But nobody says, oh, well, we can't do physics. Right. What do we do? We work with the evidence we have and we do the best we can. I think that's all we can ever do. Likewise, when we're thinking about the problem of evil, I think, so I I focus it around, I, I have a very strong intuition that it would be immoral for an all-powerful being to create a universe like this. And and that's the foundation for me of, of the problem of evil. Now, I might be wrong about that. Maybe there are all sorts of facts about morality I don't know about. But again, all you can do is work with the evidence you have. And I think the best moral thinking available to us makes it, in my view, Richard disagrees, that moral intuition very plausible, that it, namely that it would be immoral for an all-loving or, or powerful being, sorry, for an all-powerful being to create a universe like this. I call it the cosmic sin intuition. And, and so it seems to me rational to put my confidence in that because I've done the best with the evidence I have available to me. Um, so yeah, so so that's my criticism of skeptical theism. I guess you give him a criticism. I've given him a criticism of yes. Richard's view. A hybrid of the two. I'm not, I guess I'm not sure. I guess a hi I, I would worry a hybrid of the two. Well, each, each half of that hybrid would suffer from the problems I think hold right. with both of those views. Right. I'm not sure joining them together would strengthen it, but, but maybe that's an interesting possibility I'd like to look yeah. into. Uh, one, one, just one question I, on the cosmic sin intuition. Uh, it would be immoral for an all-powerful being to deliberately create a universe like ours. That's that that, that intuition. Um, you know, I take it that what would be immoral uh, is because it includes individuals who suffer. Uh, you know, not just a universe like ours, kind of generally, but includes individuals who suffer. And I just, I just wanted to put to you and ask the question: Is there any sense in which that intuition could also impugn human parents for having children? Because it doesn't seem like just the general structure of the world is what's immoral, but it's, it's about God bringing into the world individuals who suffer in the world, which seems like something that we do very often as well. I just wanted to see if you had a thought on that. Well, I. Yeah, I think it's important that we're not all powerful. So uh, I, I think um, if, you know, if you have a choice between bringing into existence a healthy child and a child who's very, very seriously, very, very seriously 
cognitively and physically disabled, then you could could argue it would be wrong to 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 do the latter. Um, but and I think human limitations um, are the reasons why. Going back to Richard's point about um, the, the the role of the state and the role of parents, we are forced to these pragmatic things of giving the state power over us, of giving certain individuals uh, power over their children until they're mature enough. And we, it's it's usual that it will be the, the natural parents, if that's possible, because taking into account sort of um, natural instincts and f fitting with how things work pragmatically in that sense as well. So, I mean, I agree with Richard, I'm sort of skeptical of social contract theory, but still, I would say the reason we give the state these powers is is not because the state is nice to us. It's more to do with the fact that we we vote for it in the in the, we have dem democratic power in the good cases, but because just of these pragmatic constraints of of life as we find it. Whereas God doesn't face these pragmatic constraints, so I don't think those same considerations come up there. So yes, it's okay for me to have a child, as problematic as that's going to be, because. I'm doing the best I can with what is available to me. But I think things look very different when you're talking about a being who can do anything. Great. Well, well Richard, so I want to let you um, come back in here. Feel free to respond to any of that. Uh, I also you know, might be interested, Richard, to hear in particular, you know, Philip has this conception of a, a limited God or, or purpose that doesn't, you know, push towards kind of an omni-God, where, where you have a, a cumulative case of a variety of arguments, including historical arguments, that seem to point particularly towards a, a specific God and a specific nature of God. So uh, I know part of your argument is that uh, the omni-God is simpler, but you also have other arguments that point in that direction. Uh, feel free to speak to that as well, if you'd like. Uh, yes, just to uh, come back to one of Philip's points. He says that uh, we give the, uh, the state these powers because it's to our advantage to do so. Well, it's certainly to our advantage not to disobey the laws, uh, but it doesn't mean to say that the state has the right to impose the laws. It needs a, a better justification of the state having rights than this pragmatic one, and that's what I, I tried to give. Um, now, you ask uh, more uh, arguments. Well, all my arguments of what's called natural theology are arguments from the general nature of the world, and their, their premises, I think, are uncontestable. <laughs> there are laws of nature, and people are conscious of that. Uh, the question is what you get out of them. And um, in giving uh, my case earlier, I mentioned all of the, these factors. I would, uh, of course, add um, that, in my view, he gives us free will. That is contested, and I have certain arguments, but they are not conclusive. But uh, it does seem that way to us that we have, have reasonable choices. But I do have a, a different set of arguments for the particularly Christian God. That is to say, the God who... Christians believe, became incarnate in Christ, died on the cross, rose from the dead. By his resurrection, he made available to us forgiveness from our sins. I could go into those, but um, I, I certainly have got time to hear them. But um, I, I think you're right, Richard, And uh, but maybe that'll be another show, because uh, I would love to dig into that together. 
I mean, as we finish this show, I, I, I wondered about whether we, we might have a bit of common ground at the end, as we did at the at the beginning. Uh, I'll just, we have to be very brief on this, but I just wanted to pose to each of you. Richard, I wonder, would you agree with Philip that the sort of third way that he approaches is preferable to atheism? <laughs> uh, we, we tend to think of the argument as between traditional theism and atheism. If someone for whatever reason, felt that they did not, could not believe in traditional theism, uh, does Philip put on the table an interesting option that could be a competitor or even preferable to atheism as we think through the different alternatives? Well, I suppose it is preferable to atheism because it moves a bit more in my direction. That, that is true. But I'm afraid I am do find it. Uh, it it's one of those hypotheses that um, is put together so that it fits all the facts, but the putting together looks as if it itself needs a little bit of explanation. So yes. uh, simply for that reason, I'm not happy with his uh, furnitures. Yes, that makes sense. But that is interesting if actually the, uh, perhaps the debate itself, you know, can shift to this place of we see purpose in the universe. How do we explain that purpose? I, I could talk with both of you all day. Uh, we, I'm hoping we can do more episodes, but we do need to leave it here. For now, thank you so much to my guests, Professor Richard Swinburne and Professor Philip Goff. I've enjoyed learning from both of you, and I'm sure the same is true for many of our listeners around the world. As always, let us know what you thought. We very much look forward to having you with us next time. Until then, keep the conversation going. I'm Vince Vitale for Unbelievable. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening and see you next week.